Well, good morning. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. So, in the New Testament, if you're looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, head right. If you get to Revelation, head left. Hebrews chapter 2. I'm looking forward to spending the next four weeks in this chapter with you. Now, I hope you've been watching the news over the last really several months. You've probably witnessed the horrors that are happening not only in Israel, but also in Ukraine and in other parts of the world. And you might think to yourself, well, wars, you know, it's been happening for centuries. It's normal. Hey, it's not here at least. Or you might think more Christianly, wait a second, these are image bearers who are abusing one another instead of using their authority and influence to care and serve and build each other up. Maybe you've read something recently about gender identity in society. You might think, well, culture is just kind of going its own ways. You know, it is what it is. It's not really touching my life, and you just kind of stay distant from that topic. Or you might think more Christianly about that topic. Wait a second. Instead of receiving who God has made us and embracing the role He has given us, we are going our own way. Our pride our pride, friends, is producing mass dehumanizing. Whether it's war or gender confusion or even technology addiction, this world has a natural way of dehumanizing us, calling into question God's purpose for humanity and inserting, allowing the insertion of our own ideas. There's a sort of negative moral inertia that cannot be easily overturned, a sort of physical, and spiritual entropy. And it's not leading to progress, it's leading to ruin. I would imagine you see it. In fact, you don't have to look very far, you just kind of look at your own heart and your own life. You look around the lives of others, look at what's ingrained in the society. But friends, this is precisely why Christmas is so dear to us. Am I right? This is precisely why the incarnation of Jesus is such a glorious thing. Thanks be to God that He sent His Son, Jesus, in order to rescue us, not just from the curse of sin, but from ourselves, from our sin. And not just from our sin as a category, but from the subsequent wrath that is due our name. Instead of entropy, through Jesus, we can expect, this might be a new word for you, na-gentropy. I probably said that wrong. Na-gentropy. It just means gradual improvement. It's the opposite of entropy. Why is Christmas such a powerful thing? Well, it's because Jesus came to reverse the curse, to undo physical and spiritual entropy to give us new life. Friends, that's what this four-week sermon series is all about. I want to look at Hebrews chapter 2, and I want to pull out from this passage, verses 5 through the end of the chapter, I want to give you four reasons why the Son of God came to earth. 
And before we dive in, I, I want to give you the context of Hebrews, the first couple chapters in particular. What is going on in the book of Hebrews? Well, in chapter 2, verse 5, we're picking up on this argument that began in chapter 1. We don't know who the author is. He's anonymous, and he's writing to this little first century church before the fall of Jerusalem. So this is in the 60s, and he's writing primarily to Jewish Christians. He's speaking from the Old Testament. He's warning them not to go back to the Old Testament ways. They are in danger of compromising their Christian commitments, likely likely because of the persecution that's going on as a result of Nero's reign. And so the author is warning, really, throughout this letter, don't depart from the faith. And the way he does that is by showing them, this is the cool part, showing them the glory and the supremacy of Jesus. He tells them over and over and over again, Jesus is better. He uses a series of comparisons and contrasts, and the author is saying through these comparisons and contrasts that Jesus is superior to all of the Old Testament greats. He's superior to the angels and priests and Moses, etc., and the first contrast that he kind of brings forth and that, that he says is Jesus is greater than the angels. In chapter 1, Jesus' person, he says, is greater than the personhood of the angels. And starting in verse 5 of chapter 2, he shows how Jesus' work, his work, what he has done, is greater than anything angels can do. And in doing this, the writer offers these four reasons that Jesus came to earth. Today we're going to consider the first one. Let's read our passage together here. The word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5. For he has not subjected to angels the world to come that we are talking about, but someone somewhere has testified, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time, you crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjective, subjecting every, everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him, but we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Here's the main point of the passage. I trust it will be the main point of this sermon as well. The Son of God became human to fulfill God's original purpose for us. The Son of God became human to fulfill God's original purpose for us. Listen, friends, God had a very particular plan for humanity it was a perfect plan. It was a glorious plan. It was a magnificent plan. It would have been fulfilling for each of us to experience. But as you know, sin would twist and mar and break down that original plan. And of course, the good news of Christmas is that light has come. Two points. Here's the first point. We're going to look at God's purpose and our failure. God's purpose and our failure. Now, before the writer starts to talk about Jesus, he has to show us what God had originally intended for human beings. That's what these opening verses are all about. In verse 5, notice the writer indicates that it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. In other words, 
humans stand out in creation. We are greater than the angels. And one day, get this, one day we are going to rule the new world alongside Jesus. Now, this must have been stunning to this little harried house church. These seemingly insignificant people, likely a minuscule dot in the Roman Empire. Someday they, someday they are going to rule the world. Friends, this is God's ultimate intention for us. What the author does next is really interesting. Look at verses 5 through 8. He establishes this ultimate intention by demonstrating that it is in accord with God's original intention for humanity. He has kind of this little Bible study. He says, hey, let's turn to uh, Psalm chapter 8, somewhere someone, you know, said these words. And he thinks about Psalm 8. And in Psalm 8, David, I don't know, maybe he was laying back on some rolling hill somewhere as a shepherd, and he's looking at, up at the stars when he pens this magnificent psalm. David is so overwhelmed with the greatness of this creator God, he bursts into this psalm. First, he celebrates God's majestic name. By the way, this is what was read earlier for us. He celebrates God's majestic name, then declaring, he, he declares God's worthiness, the worthiness that he ought to be praised. And next, he, he wonders at God's intention for puny little old us, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you care for him? You see that echoed in our passage, right? In verses 7 and 8, you see it there? It's like David is saying, we are so small. We are so small, little drop in the vast ocean, little speck of dust among the tens of billions of galaxies, which each contain billions of stars. And yet God sees us, and He cares for us, and He's mindful of us. We must be special. We must have some sort of God-given dignity in order for these things to be true. Indeed, we do. That's what he's driving at. Look again with me at verses 7 and 8. These are the next verses in Psalm 8. And these verses echo Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, which talk about humans being God's image bearers. They're called to have dominion and multiply all over the world, all over the earth. And so when the, the psalmist says glory and honor, you see it there. When the psalmist says glory and honor, I think he's referring to this original intention back in Genesis chapter 1. Bearing God's image means we have a special status among God's creation. There's something different with us, something special, something worthy of honor. Listen, every person you run into this week has been crowned with glory and honor, okay? Every single person, even the people you don't like, even the people that you find to be terribly weird and awkward, that person is stamped with glory and honor. That's a real privilege, isn't it? Especially in view of a culture that shoots either too high or too low. Some think humans as kind of little gods. Everything is measured by what we think and what we want and what we say and what we do. Others say there's nothing significant or special about humans. We are nothing but little dust mites in this big universe. 
Our passage kind of rejects both views. It tells us that every human being has been crowned by God with a special status as his image bears. At the same time, what we are has been given to us by God. So we aren't God. We are not the measure of all things. Only he is. Friends, this means, and I want you to hear me, and there are moments in sermons where uh, the, the pastor is very interested, very or especially interested in pulling you close. This means, as we're talking about this, as we're thinking about Genesis 1, as we're thinking about Psalm 8, and as we're thinking about Hebrews 2, this means that you matter. You matter. You matter because you are human. And because you are human, you are created in God's image. Your life has incredible value. I want you to hear that. The lives of the pre-born matter. The lives of people in Israel right now and Ukraine right now, even though we are thousands of miles apart from them, those lives matter. The lives of confused teens who want to take hormone pills, perhaps, they matter. Friends, since the dawn of time, there is a, a simple impulse to diminish certain groups of people. Let's just take the last century, okay? In the 40s, it was the Jews. In the 70s, it was the Cambodians. It's been for decades now, the preborn, or kids, or sometimes women, or the handicapped. Today, it's men. Today, it's Christians in this country. Because of what we see in this passage today, Christians ought to especially be the people, the kinds of people who value and elevate all kinds of people in such a way that the world looks at us and finds it incredibly odd. Because their love is more of a selective love, is it not? You know, the last phrase quoted in, in um, Hebrews 2 uh, look, at, look at it with me. It says, uh, you crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under, under his feet. It explains this kind of special status more clearly. As God's image bearers, we are given rule and dominion over this world. This also comes right out of Genesis chapter 1. We rule on God's behalf. We are kind of like vice regents of a great king. Wherever we go, we bear his authority and spread his fame. This is God's original intention back in Genesis chapter 1, which gets kind of recapitulated through Psalm 8. And so for starters, we have authority over creation itself, don't we? Over the animal kingdom, for, for uh, example. This kind of makes sense. I mean, you don't see any deer hunting for humans, right? A couple of weeks ago, we weren't afraid of the turkeys coming after us. There's a pecking order with creation. We govern the animal kingdom, but we can take it a step further here. Genesis 1, a passage that I've mentioned now a couple times, it ends by saying, be fruitful and multiply. Now, that's not a passage that's like, hey, just go and have much more babies. Like, lots of babies, just go, go do that. That's not precisely, that's part of what's going on, but that's not precisely what's going on. We've got to take all of this together, all of what we've been talking about together. Being God's image bearers means we represent God, we bear his authority on earth, and thus we rule on his behalf. It's God's original intention. And that rule includes multiplying so we can spread his rule throughout the earth. You see? You see the logic there? It's all connected. And friends, it's all in view here in Hebrews chapter 2. 
This is God's original or ultimate intention for humanity. But, but, grand and encouraging as God's original intention was, something, of course, has gone terribly wrong. The writer purposefully, notice, gives gives kind of a dramatic expression here, starting after the quotation, and he uses this double negative in his comment on the psalm in verse 8. This is kind of 8b. He says, for in subjecting everything to him, here comes the double negative, he left nothing that is not subject to him. He's saying essentially, hey, there's absolutely nothing that's not under man's dominion. Now, you hear that and you're thinking, man, that sounds really great, but I, I don't really think that's true? I mean, wait a second. Like, is that actually true? That's not true. That can't be true. Not in our fallen world. Which is why the writer then says, notice, actually, as it is right now, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. The writer of Hebrews nails it. Our rule has become twisted by sin. We can't rule over ourselves, let alone others, or this creational world. I mean, think about Adam in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where we see God's original intention. He had these three relationships that he was, in a sense, entrusted with, right? He had a relationship, of course, with God. He had a relationship with his wife, Eve. And then he had a relationship. He had commands related to how he interacted with the creation. God, of course, was his authority. But those other two relationships, he bore the authority in those relationships. And what did he do with that authority? So we get into Genesis chapter 3. Well, he fails to rule over the serpent, giving into his lives, lies, excuse me. He failed to, in a sense, rule over his wife, giving into her temptation. And now sin has corrupted all of those three relationships. We don't relate to God well. We've put ourselves on his throne. We do what we want. We say what we want. We act the way we want. How do we relate to one another? Well, not great. Consider the conflict in the Middle East right now or just the petty ways you and I can interact with others or so quickly bear this kind of irrational ill will towards other people. Our marriages break down and our bosses misuse their authority and those who are called to submit end up undermining. Our reign over the animal world is superficial at best. I mean, we can sort of achieve it by intimidation, you know, obey me or I'll eat you or wear you. But then again, we can become the feast ourselves. So in each of these three relationships, there's a sort of poison that is seeped in. We don't really put this world under our feet. When we die, eventually, the world will actually put you under its feet. You've heard the famous dictum, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I think in every generation of mankind, we have experienced that, right? G.K. Chesterton was right when he said, quote, Whatever else is true about man, this one thing is certain. Man is not what he was meant to be. I think we feel that deep in our bones, don't we? People will tell you that the problem with the world is a lack of education or bad cultural influences or economic inequality. If those things are sorted out, the world would be a better place. But in all of those scenarios, the problem is still there as long as we are still there, right? 
We are the problem with this world. And if we are the problem, then we cannot be the solution. Education, government, programs, and cultural change, they are not enough because they are human solutions. We cannot save ourselves, friends. So where is their hope? Let's look at verse 9. Let's look at verse 9 together. But, there it is, there's another important but. But, we do see Jesus made lower, lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Listen, friends, where the first Adam failed, the last Adam, Jesus, succeeded. That is the boom of this passage. The first Adam and all of his descendants didn't fulfill God's purposes for humanity, but there would be another Adam who would come and undo the work of the first Adam. This is why Christmas is here, right? Hope comes, listen, not from an angel, not from another human being, but from the Son of God who takes on flesh. Look at the contrast you, we see, the end of verse 8 and then into verse 9. It says, we do not yet see. Here's something we don't see. We don't see everything subjected to humanity. And as we said earlier, that's because of sin. But what do we see according to verse 9? We see Jesus. He was made a little lower than the angels. That means he took on human flesh. The height of exaltation for humanity is being made a little lower than the angels. But for Jesus, but for Jesus, this is the depth of his humiliation. Jesus stooped real low to reach down to the height of mankind's glory. We're reminded again of how great and how glorious and how different Jesus is. Listen, he is not just a greater human like Superman or another Marvel hero. He is very God of gods. He has put on flesh as God. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Kids, let me encourage you. I know there's some of my daughters in here and there's others too in here. Let me just encourage you, don't make Santa Claus your hero this month. Don't make presents the star of the show. You know, whether it's that Lego thing that you want to get or a gaming system or a vacation or a new puppy. You know, I think the Bible commends and even commands heroes, that we humans have heroes. You see that in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. It says, follow their example, learn from them, look up to them. We want to be heroes to other people as well. But friends, please know that you've got a supreme hero in Jesus. There is nothing lacking in Jesus. No kryptonite with Jesus. You can look at any and every aspect of his life, and you will only find perfection. Think about that. And notice the next phrase. It says, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor so that he might taste death for all. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 talks about this. He says, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, Jesus, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And so we see that in Christ, man's 
glorious potential is realized. Everything is put under Jesus' feet, but it would come by way, of course, by way of a cross. Jesus would obey perfectly. He would die unjustly in order to restore us, to undo the work of the first Adam. Friends, here we are at the heart of Christmas. The Son of God became the promised seed of the woman, the serpent crusher, the last Adam. Through Jesus, we are restored. You see that verse, taste, in verse 9? It's a Hebrew metaphor that means to partake fully. So we're not talking about a little jungle gym sample on a Saturday morning, okay? This is to partake fully. Jesus' death, his real death, his full death secured our real reign. Paul, again, listen to his words in Romans chapter 5. If because of one man's trespasses, and that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Friends, our hope is that we Christians are in Christ. We have this sort of solidarity with Christ. Paul uses the designation 169 times. It's the designation in Christ, those words, in Christ or in him. And in Christ, that phrase suggests not only a new position, but it also suggests a new exchange, an impartation that we get from Christ. He gives us life, in other words, life where there is death. And so we are united to Christ, and we are so united to him, in fact, as Christians, that we can share in his life and in his resurrection. Now, what does this mean? It means we have hope. We have hope. And we look around and we see sin invading our lives. We see not everything subjected to humanity and even the things that are subjected to humanity. We're not handling that well. And all of this really irks us. It annoys us. It frustrates us, doesn't it? But then we see Jesus exalted, crowned with glory and honor. We see all creation now subjected to him. And with this, With this, the possibility that we can fulfill God's ultimate intention. That is now a real thing. Christ's glorification is our foothold to our glory. Think with me of how this little beleaguered, you know, church, the the recipients of of Hebrews, how how this must have landed on them. You know, the, the illusion of insignificance has wrapped its cold fingers around many of them. They feel like an unwanted speck among the millions in the Roman Empire. The world is pressing in on them. The world is oppressing them. The world is questioning them. But they are the restored people of God in Christ. And yet they are made to feel something quite different by this world that's pressing in and oppressing them. You see, friends, this world has a peculiar way of dehumanizing us. And this is precisely why we must celebrate with our utmost the glory of Christmas. It's not just the recipients of this letter that feel small and lost and weak and insignificant. We certainly do too, don't we? The reality is we might be sub-microscopic spots in a huge fallen universe, but as God's children united to him, we are objects, hear me now, we are objects of astounding divine attention. 
God is minutely mindful of us and cares for us in the greatest detail. Why? Because he is mindful of his son, Jesus. And all who are in Jesus, he's mindful of them. I don't want you to miss this. I want to say this in another way because it's so important. There's kind of this great representational reality here. Jesus was not only our substitute in his death, he was our substitute in his life. He is the last Adam, which means he succeeded where the first Adam failed. He came to restore humanity. He shows us what true humanity looks like, and when we abide in him, this is language from John 15, abide in the vine, when we connect our lives practically and daily to Jesus's life, we can experience true humanity as well. Friends, I want you to recognize something uh, this morning. Recognize that the last Adam in you is more powerful than the first Adam in you. The last Adam in you, Jesus, is more powerful than the first Adam in you. I know sin still lingers. It's going to tempt you every single day for the rest of your life. I feel it too. Every moment on Sunday mornings when we confess our sins, I guarantee you there's going to be at least three things that pop into my mind, and there should be more. But the last Adam is far greater in you than the first Adam. And this means no matter how what painful realities you're going through, either battling your own sin or someone else's sin or the effects of sin, there will always be hope with Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays and he's talking about Jesus and he says, the power which raised Jesus from the dead is functioning and working and laboring in you. Think about that. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, you have access to tomorrow if you are in Christ. Of course, you've got to connect to Jesus in order to activate that, but you have access to it. Isaac Watts wrote about this in the 18th century when he said, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. So he's talking about the curse upon all of creation, the curse upon humans as well. And then he says, He, Jesus, comes to make his blessings flow. How far? Far as the curse is found. He has come to make his blessings flow, flow like a, like a tsunami upon the people of God. He has come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So friends, in every nook and cranny of our lives, in every place sin can sneak in and distort humanity and twist God's purposes, Jesus came to bring blessing and health and vitality in those very places. And our job each day is to connect ourselves to Jesus. And as we do, we can expect a, a sort of shot of spiritual adrenaline in the very places where that curse is found. We've already talked about three places of application before. I want to close quickly by thinking about each of these. Three relationships, us and God. Us towards the creation and then us towards others. First of all, there is a restoration of humanity, a blessing given in how we relate to God. This Christmas season, let me encourage you to get right with God. I know there's some children here in the room, and there may be spouses or visitors here that 
are not Christians, and as I've said before, you're so welcome here at Faith Church. I want you to know this Jesus. There is there's zero hope for you outside of Jesus. You may have all this world offers, but it will be temporary. If you stay outside of Christ, if you stay disconnected to Christ, you have no hope. But if you connect your life to Jesus, then salvation and restoration is available to you. So let me just encourage you, children, perhaps others here who aren't Christians, let me encourage you to make today the day of your salvation. I've said it before. It's a true statement. We don't know if we're going to have tomorrow. Trust in Christ today. And if you are a Christian, you know this, this is the reason for the season, right? All, you, know, you know, when you prepare sermons, all of those cheesy lines come into your head and you try to filter, filter, filter. One of them snuck in. Christmas in three words. God with us. Emmanuel. He has come. And this means the possibility Hear me now. The possibility of reconciliation for every wayward person in your life. The person you might think is the furthest from God. There's no way. There's no way he can be right with God. It's possible this Christmas season for God to break through. Yes, it would have to be the Holy Spirit coming in, taking off those blinders, bringing them close to him helping them see the beauty and the glory and the sufficiency of Jesus in also their own sin. So, friend, pray boldly and speak boldly about this great salvation. Number two, the, the second one of the relationships we talked about is the relationship that we have, we have with creation. That's an interesting one. This could be a whole sermon in and of itself, but how far is that blessing going to go? It's going to go all the way into our relationship, how we relate to the creation. Now, it's fascinating to me to see how save the whales and save the planet has more traction than save the preborn. That's really interesting to me. And yet, hear me now, we are still, we are still called to care well for creation, to be good stewards of our planetary resources and the animals and so on. This gets into how you steward your home and your yard even and how you faithfully do your part in ruling this planet for the glory of God through your vocation and your homemaking, even your gardening. Because of sin, our tendency will be to consume and to isolate. But because of Christ, we are freed up in new ways. Instead of consuming, we can create and we can commune. You can now foster beauty for God's glory and the enjoyment of other humans. Be that in your home, your garden, your town. Listen, Christmas decorations, I mean, we see it here on stage. These, these are good things. Gathering around the table with good food prepared and good people. These are good things. It too is part of our new humanity in Christ. The third relationship, of course, is us towards other people. There's a restoration, a blessing given in how we relate to each other. Far as the curse is found, yet we, we see the curse here, don't we? I mean, whether it's a painful marriage or embittered relationships or tense conflicts or cold shoulders or silent treatments or hardened unforgiveness, every day probably, we experience how our relationships are not right. 
But Jesus' life, death, and resurrection have brought blessing to flow as far as the curse is found. Even here, especially here, we can find life. Yesterday, was a part of Carolyn Conold's funeral, and we heard over and over and over again that she lived a radical life of selflessness and servanthood. Where did Carolyn find the juice for that? It's not in her, ultimately. It was her connection to Christ. It's not Mother Teresa or Maya Angelou or Oprah or John Paul II. It's Jesus whose life of utter self-sacrifices shows us the way of love. The Bible tells us that God is love. Jesus doesn't only offer love, he is love. So what does love look like? Look to him. It's in his essence. So there's hope for every Christian in this room to love just as Jesus loves. If you're struggling to love, meditate this Christmas on how far Jesus went to love you, how much patience he has offered you, how he has served you. Friends, Jesus, why why did he come? What did Jesus come for? Well, the first reason we see here in Hebrews chapter 2, he came to bring blessing as far as the curse is found. He came to bring blessing to our cursed humanity. He wants to restore a new humanity here at Faith Church. Amen. Let's take some time now to ponder this passage and prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper.